0: Loving Sairam and greetings from Prashanti Nilayam. This is my sixth talk in the Veda walkthrough series. Last time, I finally started on the walkthrough in the way I had been planning all along and took you up to the stage where a young boy is admitted to the ashram of an acharya to learn the Vedas. We now cut to the time when the disciple leaves and prepares to enter life. The disciple returns home, rejoins his family, and with the consent of his parents and relatives, marries, settles down to discharge his duties in life along with his wife, as ordained by the Scriptures. I shall commence with some verses chanted during the marriage ceremony. But first, a few words of introduction about the concept of marriage in Vedic times. It is remarkable that almost all societies independently establish the custom of marriage, whereby a man and a woman enter into a holy and lifelong alliance, raise a family, and try to enjoy a prosperous life. Invariably, in every community around the world, Marriage was not merely a case of entering into a social contract, but also had a religious side to it, besides being an occasion for celebration and festivities. Marriage was the commencement of a new chapter in the long story of the sustenance of the human race. These days, marriage is often seen as the culmination of a romance with focus largely on the physical union. Indeed, the excessive stress on the physical has reached a point where, during the last few decades, marriage is no longer considered necessary. A couple come together and live together as long as they please without any concept of social responsibility or of sin. Concepts such as marriage are considered to be old-fashioned, irrelevant and even meaningless. To ridicule tradition is regarded as being very progressive and modern. Things were very different in Vedic times. Humans did not see themselves as freewheeling individuals, but as a vital part of a cosmic whole in which each one played a part as ordained to sustain the wheel of life and dharma. Dharma, that was the key word. The Brahmin in particular had not only personally uphold dharma to the best of his ability but also had the responsibility of guiding others in doing the same in this task the wife was his partner and that is why the word used for wife was sahadharmini meaning one who participated with equal right in upholding dharma how did the couple uphold dharma not merely by being truthful in all their actions but also by discharging their various duties. Maybe I shall come to that a bit later, but for the moment, let us take it that in Vedic times, marriage was more than a matter of assisting, procreation and propagating the human race. Swami has in some of His discourses, especially a memorable one given during the summer course of 1996, described the marriage of Rama and Sita. He said on that occasion, that this was no ordinary marriage. It was the coming together of Paramatma and Prakriti, meaning the coming together of cosmic consciousness as represented by Rama and divine Shakti or divine energy as represented by Sita. In a sense, the union of a man and a woman in holy wedlock symbolizes the coming together of complementary parts to make a whole. Turning to the marriage ceremony itself, It was a pretty elaborate affair that included the father giving away the bride to the bridegroom. Here, it is pertinent to recall what Swami said about the marriage of Rama and Sita. There was the holy and sacred fire, and mantras were being chanted both by Janaka, the father of the bride, and Rama, as appropriate, guided of course by celebrated rishis like Vishwamitra and Vasishta. At one point, Janaka says, Here is my daughter Sita. Rama was expected to turn towards her and take a look at her. He did not. Emperor Janaka repeated the statement again. Once more, Rama did not look in the direction of Sita. After the third time, Rama said to Janaka, I am not yet formally married and an unmarried man must not look at young women. One might say that this was the limit. But that was how seriously the observance of code of conduct was taken in those days. One thing striking about the Vedic marriage is the central role played by the sacred fire. Agni, the lord of fire, plays the role of a witness and all declarations and promises are made with Agni as the witness. This is the equivalent of taking an oath by placing one's hand on the Bible or the Quran or whatever. In the Vedic system, the entire marriage is performed with Agni as the witness. Once one swears by Agni, one is supposed to keep one's promise, come what may. Incidentally, Swami narrates an interesting incident that occurred during Rama's wedding. One of the promises that the groom makes is that he would fulfill the wishes of his wife or something to that effect. When the priest chanted that mantra, Rama was supposed to repeat it. He did not. The priest chanted the mantra a second time and once more Rama remained silent. The priest then said, Rama, you must chant this mantra. Rama said in reply, I am sorry, but I will not. Why? asked the priest. Rama then said, I belong to the royal family. One day I would have to rule as a king. For a king, his subjects must always come first and only then the wife. If I make this promise, then it would require me to give top priority to my wife, which would go against the dharma of kings. So you see, once again, an example of the primacy given to dharma. Turning to some of the rituals associated with Vedic marriage, the groom takes the hand of the bride and this, by the way, is probably the first time he touches her And as the bride gets up, she is supposed to step on a stone, placing the tip of her right foot. At that time, the groom says, Come, step on the stone. Be strong like a stone. Resist enemies. Overcome those who attack you. After this, the bridegroom pours some parched rice into the bride's joint palms and says, This grain I spill." May it bring well-being to me and unite you to me. May Agni hear us. Agni is not only the witness but also a protector. After the bridegroom finishes saying those words, the bride pours the grain into the fire. Perhaps this is symbolic of conveying the appeal to Agni. The groom then continues, This woman, scattering grain into the fire, prays, Blessings on my husband. May my relatives prosper. The couple then walk around the fire with the groom chanting suitable mantras, symbolic of their union as man and wife. After this comes the famous ritual of the seven steps, during which the bride takes step after step while the groom says, One step for vigor, two steps for vitality. Three steps for prosperity. Four steps for happiness. Five steps for cattle. Six steps for seasons. Seven steps for friendship to my devoted. After the seventh step, the bride remains still while the groom says, With seven steps we become friends. Let me reach your friendship. Let me not be severed from your friendship. Let your friendship not be severed from me. Next, touching the heart of the bride, the groom says, I hold your heart in serving fellowship. Your mind follows my mind. In my word, you rejoice with all your heart. You are joined to me by the Lord of all creatures. The couple then depart from the wedding site. The bride following the groom to his house, or rather the house of his parents. When they leave, they carry an earthen pot, a part of the sacred fire, which they are supposed to keep alive throughout their marriage. Fire thus becomes the constant witness in the lives of the couple. When the couple reach the house of the groom, he says, Enter with your right foot. Do not remain outside. There the couple sit in silence till dusk falls and the stars become visible. The couple then go out when the husband points the pole star to the wife saying, You are firm and I see you. Be firm with me, O flourishing one. Brahaspati has given you to me to live with me for a hundred years, bearing children by me, your husband. I am not sure if I have given the flavor of the Vedic marriage rites, but if I managed to convey the cosmic view they had of marriage in those times, then I would have done my job. Let me go back to this Dharma business. Dharma is often translated as righteous conduct. To us, with a so-called secular vision, right conduct might mean being truthful, not harming others and so on. Yes, all these do form a part of right conduct. But in those distant times, duty was the cornerstone of right conduct. A man might never tell a lie. A man might never harm another person. But if he was not true to his duties, then he was straying away from dharma. In life, duty called for, among other things, the expression of gratitude. These days, one seldom realizes what one owes to others. After the end of the famous Battle of Britain, Winston Churchill said in a tribute to the young men of the Royal Air Force, RAF, Never have so many owed so much to so few. In life, Each of us owes so much to so many, starting from God. And yet, how often we remember them with gratitude. In Vedic times, yajna was one of the means by which various debts were discharged. Swami says, and I quote, There are five yajnas prescribed as mandatory for every human being. End of quote. Let me now list these five yajnas spelled out by Swami. They are Rishi Yajna, Pitru Yajna, Deva Yajna, Atiti Yajna and Bhuta Yajna. I shall now explain what each of these yajnas mean starting with Rishi Yajna. It was the rishis who gave the scriptures, especially the Vedas. One therefore owes an expression of gratitude to the sages of old. How does one thank them? well, by remembering them for a minute and then studying the scriptures intently. One was not expected to just turn the pages of the books of scriptures, but remind oneself of all the diktats mentioned therein. Next, Pitru Yajna. Normally, the word Pitru means parents, but in Vedic times, Pitru also meant ancestors. We really do not know or realize how much we owe to our ancestors. Indeed, if today we are well off in many respects, it is in no small measure due to the sacrifice the ancients made in their time. Here, I am reminded of a talk that late Mr. V.K. Narsiman, then editor Sanatan Sarti, gave to Swami students in the Divine Presence in Thri Brindavan. I happen to be present. Mr. Narsiman said, in his own inimitable style of course, Many of you students dream of going to America, because that seems like the land of milk and honey. But do you know that if America is prosperous today, it is because of the tremendous hard work and enormous sacrifices made by the immigrants of last century? You want to enjoy the benefits of their sacrifice, but what about your own contribution? This country needs sacrifice, and you must stay here and do what the immigrants did in America a hundred years ago. Then, this country too would become prosperous. That is the gist of what Mr. Narasimhan said. Talking of America becoming rich, I am reminded of a nice story involving the famous film actor and comedian Danny Kaye, who was once the UNICEF ambassador, bringing love and cheer to children all over the world, especially in countries where there was much suffering. Danny Kay's father came to America from Poland, maybe in the very early part of the last century. As you perhaps know, hundreds of thousands of people from all parts of Europe poured then into America, seeking a better life. Danny Kay's father was one of them. After a few years, he returned to his hometown in Poland for a brief visit. His friends back home immediately surrounded him And plied him with all sorts of questions about America. One of them asked, Is it true that in America the streets are paved with gold? Danny K's father said in reply, No, it is not true that the streets in America are paved with gold. In fact, most of the streets are not paved at all, not even with stone. And do you know what my job is? Paving the streets with stone. So you see, there is no free lunch ever and whatever benefits we enjoy granted to us by society, we have a duty to be thankful for. In the Vedic age, the expression of gratitude formed an important part of one's life. Okay, so far I have dealt with two yajnas. Now on to the third yagya, the deva Yagya. This meant offering reverential homage to the preceding deities especially those associated with the forces of nature. Why should one offer such homage? The ancients believed that if we have rain, we owe a duty to express thanks to the God of rain. If we get sunshine, we owe a duty to the sun God and so on. In this day and age, all this might seem amusing, if not downright stupid. But I'll put it this way. We need not exactly pray to this deity or that deity, but we could, could we not, to say the least, at least pray to God Almighty for the sun, the wind, the rain and so forth, without which we would all be dead? Besides, do we not have an obligation to keep the elements of nature pure, meaning not polluting air, water and land? I cannot but recall here a Thrai session many years ago when I was privileged to be present along with Swami's students. Swami said that modern man ridicules the ancients as being superstitious and stupid. Modern man says, Look at these fools. They worship the land, the water, the air, and even snakes. How idiotic. Swami then said, The ancients did not pollute the air, they did not pollute water and they respected all the constituents of nature, including all animals. But modern man, besides polluting heavily land, water, and air, is also destroying entire forests and wiping out many species of animals without concern for eco- and biobalance. Who is more stupid, modern man who is wrecking all the gifts of God or the ancients who not only preserved what God gave them, but also were thankful to God for the blessing. One cannot give a more powerful assessment of Vedic life and philosophy. Incidentally, this respect for ancestors and the environment is to be found in many traditional cultures, for example among American Red Indians. Only the Vedic seers saw the universe in a much larger cosmic setting than did the people of other cultures, as I shall perhaps explain in a later talk. A couple of words now about the remaining two yagyas, namely Atiti Yajna and the Bhuta Yajna. The former involves offering cordial and loving hospitality to guests, while Bhuta Yajna means doing everything one can to sustain all the components of the environment plants, trees, fishes, birds, and animals. The husband dutifully performed all these yagyas and the wife rendered all the support that was necessary. Before I proceed further with the Vedic journey, I think it is useful for me to pause for a moment and reflect on the above yajnas, especially their relevance to modern times. To many, all these may appear to be a waste of time. But instead of focusing on the procedures associated with Vedic rites, let us concentrate on the basic principles of Vedic life. The first thing is the concept of a family. The family is the atom of society and it has been so throughout history in all places and in all cultures. It is only in recent times that the concept of the family is being severely rocked with practices that seek to make marriage irrelevant all in the name of personal freedom. I recall reading when I was the Vice-Chancellor, a convocation address given by a Canadian lady, an educationist, to one of our universities. She said that 150 or about even 100 years ago, most people in Canada lived on farms. Every farm was run by a family and all the farm work had to be done by all the members of the family, the father, the mother, the sons and the daughters. Since all did more or less the same type of work, There was no question of gender bias and there automatically prevailed a sense of equality. The Canadian educationist then said, When Canada started getting industrialized, more and more people started moving to the cities and things started changing suddenly and dramatically. Many men went to work in offices and their work took them on tours. They could then have a good time while on the road drinking and spending time on the golf courses, visiting nightclubs, and so on. The women, on the other hand, slogged in the home, doing kitchen work, bringing up the children, and so on. This lady, Canadian lady that I mentioned, said that that was when feminist feelings started to rise and become strong. What I am getting at is that when life strays away from duty, imbalance results. In Vedic society, the focus was always on duty, responsibility and the sustenance of society as well as nature. Analyze every Ajna that I mention and you will find the undercurrent of duty. Let us take Rishi Ajna as an example. One may say, why should I be bothered? I don't care for Rishis. The point is not being bothered about Rishis but about the fact that one moves forward on what we have been handed down. You know what Newton, the great scientist said? He said, if I have been able to look farther than others, it is because I was standing on the shoulders of others. We do this all the time in science. We can't say, this Galileo, he lived 500 years ago. That's all old stuff. Forget it. We can't do that. When we teach first year physics, we have to teach what Galileo, Newton and even what Archimedes discovered. There is an essential continuity in knowledge in all branches. We can't also say, okay, Newton is relevant, but the rishis are not. Let me tell you, it was the ancient rishis who gave us our first ideas about planetary motions, etc., in India at least. They it was who made the first almanacs. In India, the neem is used for a hundred things on account of its wonderful medicinal properties. This knowledge about medicinal properties of neem, turmeric, etc. comes to us from very ancient times. We cannot scoff them, can we? In short, Rishi Agnya must be seen as an expression of gratitude to our ancients for everything they have given to us, from the discovery of fire, the invention of the wheel, and so on, right down to developing agriculture and metal forming. Expression of gratitude is a sign of refinement. Ingratitude, on the other hand, is a sign of uncivilized behavior. As for Pitru it does not mean performing some kind of rituals, but remembrance of dead ancestors and, more important, being ready to perform any sacrifice for one's parents. Compulsions of modern life have become such that people have been slowly conditioned to giving importance to their own personal security in terms of money, job, career and so on. Inevitably, parents slide down in priority, especially when they have fulfilled their role. Next thing is, they are seen to be irrelevant and a nuisance. This is not a Western attitude, but a global one. I recall seeing two wonderful dramas staged in the Purnachandra Hall many years ago on the occasion of Chinese New Year's Day. In both these dramas, the theme was how in the present day, old parents are neglected or even abandoned. I learned then that this sort of thing, neglect of parents that is, happens not only in America and India, but also in China. By the way, on both occasions, there was a young Chinese boy who literally stole the show. It was a great hit. And Swami liked his acting very much. If I am not mistaken, I think he materialized a chain for that boy. A word now about Atiti Yajna. This has... This had special relevance to the ancient times when Sannyasis wandered across the land. Sannyasis are by definition renunciates. They have no family, no home, no money, no nothing. They wander supposedly to visit holy shrines. But... During their wanderings, they always speak about God and spread the good word. In those days when a sannyasi came to a village, the people of the village would welcome him and offer hospitality. They considered it not only an honor but also a duty to do so since that was what was commanded by the Vedas. Suppose the villagers had not done this. The sannyasis could not have played the role and contributed to society. The Vedic philosophers knew all about system management. If an institution was beneficial, it had to be sustained and a procedure had to be devised for it. Thus, all procedures were based on the principle of dharma. The same goes for Bhuta Yagya. We have in India a festival called Nagapanchami when the snake is worshipped. People are petrified when the word snake is uttered. Yet, in those times, it was considered a duty to worship the snake. The Vedic seers might not have known all the details we now know about ecological balance, but this they certainly knew. Everything in the universe has been created by God with a definite purpose. This applies to everything from the hydrogen atom to the black hole. We may or may not know about the purpose, but a purpose there certainly is in the Divine Master Plan. Today, the green people and such others make a lot of noise about the environment. Very good and very necessary. But why this need? Because people have forgotten all about Bhuta In Ecuador, they want to cut down pristine rainforests to drill for oil. In Alaska, the wilderness is being disturbed for oil. In China, huge dams are being built so that more electricity can be generated. A Chinese environmentalist was asked about these dams. She said that the dams were a disaster. She was then told, But you see, if dams are not built, then more coal would have to be mined, producing electricity. Mining is a dangerous activity and so many people are being killed. Moreover, coal-fired power stations will belch carbon dioxide. So, Is it not better to generate electricity out of water from dams than from coal? The environmentalist replied, I think there is yet another alternative. It is to decrease our desires, our wants and our consumption. Then we would not need so much electricity. And when we do not need extra electricity, we do not have to build dams or mine more coal. So, this environmentalist lady has by her own reasoning come to the same conclusion that formed the basis of Vedic society. Only the Vedic seers linked it all always to God. Let me wrap up. Man married mainly to sustain Dharma with his wife as an equal partner. He had his part to play and she had hers. Nothing was considered inferior and nothing was considered superior. Duty responsibility and obligation form the core of one's life. The Vedic seers were firmly of the view that it was only when these virtues were given primacy that there would be harmony in society and human life could be sustained properly. Today, most virtues are summarily dismissed on one of two counts. Either one says it is irrelevant or one says it is not workable in this day and age. I believe both arguments are false and escapist. Duty, responsibility and obligations are often evaded in the name of freedom. What is this so-called freedom? People say freedom means one can do what one likes in an unfettered manner. But seldom do people who talk like this realize that they are not really free but a slave to their senses and mind. Who is the one who is really free? Swami says, the one who is rid of attachments and the dictates of the body, the senses and the mind, is the one who is really free. Why is there so much obsession with so-called freedom to do what one likes? I heard an American author the other day on the radio. He put it like this. He said that these days, the media, all owned by rich barons of course, want to deliver all of us lock, stock and barrel to the big corporations so that we buy what they want us to buy and we invest our money where they want us to invest. This hypothesis is not as far-fetched as it might seem, but I shall not go into that topic here. There is, however, a strong empirical correlation between the growth of advertising, the craze for freedom, the growth of consumerism, etc. This we must note. All those who are swept by the glitter and glamour of so-called freedom and all the joys it is supposed to confer are totally oblivious to social costs. Those who want to grab wealth do so at the expense of individuals and society. Ultimately, it is society that pays and pays heavily too. All this is well-known, of course, but ostrich-like. Everyone wants to hide from the truth because it's so inconvenient. Vedic society was built on the concept that Since nature and society are what sustain us all, they must receive primacy and not the individual. Marriage too was seen in this total framework and not in terms of romance or sense gratification. I am sorry I have not given as much of the details of the wedding mantras as I would have liked, but I hope I can make amends when we manage to bring a Vedic scholar to our studios. Next time, I shall take you a bit more along the Vedic path giving glimpses of how dharma was sustained in society. Thank you for listening. Jai Sairam!